0: This podcast may contain content that is graphic and disturbing in nature. Listener discretion is advised. This woman became an advocate for her brother and family following her brother's murder and sensationalized television trial that followed. But much more than that, she became an advocate for all victims and their family members. This is the Kim Goldman interview. Well, Amy, this is the interview you know that I have been waiting for and looking forward
1: to. You've outdone yourself. Where else to go from here? I don't know,
0: to be (laughs) honest. Um, This is such a special interview for me. This is a woman, for people who don't know, who I have long admired. And I wanted to have her on the show since we first began. But we finally got to make it happen. Briefly, I'll just tell you, Kim Goldman was devastated after the brutal murder of her brother Ron Goldman and Nicole Brown Simpson following their killer's acquittal in a criminal trial. Now, I say his killer. Kim Goldman does not refer to him by name. She only refers to him as the killer, and that's why I said that. I will only briefly summarize here, but for those of you who may not know, she is referring to the O.J. Simpson trial, a very public televised trial. Kim and her father, Fred Goldman, were... Present every day at trial. It was devastating to watch them as well. 22 year old Kim, her father, Fred, you might remember him. He's got a very notable, like that mustache. They watched as um, a long 10 month trial ensued that ended in the acquittal of Simpson for criminal charges. Goldman and her father, Kim and her father, later filed a civil suit against OJ Simpson. And in that suit, he was convicted for the wrongful death of her brother. So it is documented that he's a convicted killer, Mm -hmm. if you want to look at it that way. Kim didn't ask for the burden that was placed on her, but she's found a way to embrace it and use it to help others in her near 30 years of involvement in the criminal justice system. Today, you'll hear Kim talk about how she feels about a number of issues that you may not have heard before. Kim discusses what went wrong with the jury on her brother's case. She discusses the term victims and survivors and where she falls On a lighter note, Kim also lets us know about her father, Ron Goldman, how he's doing and his surprising new career move. Finally, we discuss Kim's foray into podcasting. Confronting OJ was her first podcast, and I was very strongly impacted by that one.
1: I know several, several people who are avid podcast listeners that said that was one of their favorite podcasts. I have not listened to it yet, but I definitely will be.
0: Kim is impactful. When she tells her story, you listen. It left me heartbroken, but also glad that she was able to tell her story in a way. She got to interview a lot of the players involved and get answers, I think, that she had wanted for a long time. But now Kim has a new show, Media Circus, and this also focuses on famous victims of crimes. And tells the story from their point of view.
1: It's so good, Megan. I've listened to about three episodes, and two have left me in tears. When
0: I finished listening to the Judy Shepard episode, I was pretty misty-eyed myself. I there were things that I didn't know, and especially hearing it from Judy Shepard, Matthew's mother, it was so impactful on me. And what's what's even more so, Kim hopes that um, people will walk away from each of these shows with a different insight into a crime that they thought they already knew everything about, and that's exactly how I felt when I heard Judy Shepard speak.
1: Yeah, she covers some pretty high-profile cases. The Rodney King case is on there. Yeah, and
0: I just listened to um, the Delphi case told from Kelsey German, who was Libby's Mm -hmm. sister. Things that you think you know in the media that aren't true because it is a media circus. But without further ado, because I could obviously say a lot more, my conversation with Kim Goldman. Well, thank you for being here with us today. We are very excited to talk about your work in the area of victim advocacy. You are working on a number of projects and have been a part of a number that I'd love to share with our audience. I know they're going to be really excited about it. Um, So let's start, Kim, with your first podcast, uh, because you're officially a podcaster now, right? (laughs) Right. silly. It's weird to add that.
2: It's <laughs> well, just, we'll talk it,
0: about that if it yeah. is or not. But yeah. um, your first podcast, Confronting OJ, was obviously a personal endeavor to you. And so, one of the questions I want to ask is how you felt about making this, considering it was your you know, personal.
2: Um, well, that was the driving force for wanting to do it because, um, being the subject of stories for so many years, I felt like I didn't have ownership over my story. And, um, I felt like I wanted to be the one in control of the narrative and, uh, it was helpful because it allowed me to sort of reclaim my, my voice a little bit in certain areas, uh, to be able to ask questions that I was curious to know, not what the media maybe wanted to know. Um, but it was just, it was, it was a journey of empowerment for me. So that was the motivation behind it.
0: Was it your idea, I guess, or did someone come to
2: you, you know, how did, how did you make the decision to actually do this? So it's a long convoluted story and probably deserves its own podcast series. But I think, you know, over the course of as many years as I've been, um, you know, in the, in the public eye, I've always wanted to do stories that center around victims and survivors and what they do in the face of adversity and, and to sort of redefine the term victim survivor, because I, I I just don't feel like it fits those of us like me, like, you know, victim fits my brother, you know, for what happened to my brother, Nicole survivor is someone that literally survived an attempted, you know, crime or, you know, tragedy. And so i feel like there's not really the proper term for family members or advocates in that regard. So I've been wanting to do shows or, or, you know, talk about those on on a grander scale. And so that doesn't seem to be uh wanted by members of the 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 powers that be at networks. They don't want to do educational shows like that. They don't want to do empowering, insightful, um, impactful shows about resiliency and courage and bravery and advocacy. So um I sort of needed to figure it out for myself um see if I could pave the way that way. So I I that was a stepping stone. It really was, it was Purely selfish for me to be able to do something that allowed me to reclaim my voice, but I wanted to use it as, a, as an opportunity to show, hey, see, people actually want to know from the victim-survivor advocate how we are moving through our, our trauma to come out on the other side slightly t- slightly taller.
0: When you say, I'm sorry, uh, just to play off of that a little bit, when you say that they're not interested, the networks, is it because they're only interested in more of salacious
2: storytelling? Yes, that is, that is correct. Um, listen, and I could fully admit that maybe the stuff that I've been pitching, you know, wasn't great, but the feedback that I was always getting was that it was too educational, um, that it wasn't confrontational enough. Um, and you know, how do we weave in the, the offender? How do we weave in the, you know, the going after the police? Like it was always detracting, you know, distracting from what I wanted to do, which was to center around the, the, the victims and the families and the people that are left in the wake. And I didn't really want to contribute to the sensationalism. And so, I, I mean, I get it, but if you keep feeding people the same, you know, meal, that's all they're going to eat. So I was like, let's get, let's throw some spices in there. Let's try something different and see if we can, you know, change the palate a little bit to, you know, use that analogy <laughs> over and over again. Well, we
0: certainly appreciate that, you know, our show centers around educational topics. And, you know, the feedback we get for our, our audience is fantastic. They write that we absolutely love the educational part. We're learning so much. We're not just hearing the stories, we're understanding. So I think that's really powerful. Well, and
2: I think, you know, that that I, I'm I'm learning that, you know, there are multiple, you know, areas that we can be using our voices and and the podcast world is is one certainly that is, you know, growing and it allows for so many different you know types of programming and and people can pick and choose whatever they want and it's so much is available so this seems like a great forum for us.
0: I agree. People can make their own choices what they're interested in. So turning to your work in the area of victim advocacy, for people who don't necessarily know what that entails or what you do, could you please
2: discuss that work? I would say it's it's trying to right the wrongs, it's fighting injustice, it's shedding light where it's usually dark. It's drawing attention to where there is an inequity in the system. Um, it's screaming as loud as you can. It's it's also trying to be um, proactive in making changes and not just bitching about something, but it's actually trying to come to the table to try to negotiate between what one side wants and the other side wants to come to a common goal, which when you come to victim advocacy and, and the criminal justice system, they're, they're not really all that aligned. And so, you know, we talk a lot about, um, you know, criminal justice reform, for example. And I'm frustrated with that because the whole system is to make it easier and better for the criminal. um, But they never bring the victims into the conversation um, to see how making it better for the criminal, how that actually can negatively impact victims um, and our plight to kind of you know level the playing field a little bit. So it it changes. It changes um over the years it's been about um you know increasing the length of time that you know uh, survivors of uh, sexual assault can file their cases um you know mm-hmm. extending the statutory the statute of limitations on that. It's having conversations about um, you know, Marcy's Law, which, you know, is not even enacted in, in all of our states across the country, but that Marcy's Law is there to make sure that victims have rights in the courtroom and that, that victims just even know when their offenders are released from prison. I mean, we take some of those things for granted because of what we see on the television, but in, in actuality, that's not what's happening across the country. And so victim advocacy is really about drawing attention to that and trying to right those wrongs.
0: Do you think that there's too much of a focus? It's just a personal observation, just something that what you said that I think about. But do you think there's too much of a focus on the actual punishment part? And, you know, once the person's punished and the victims are sort of left on their own and there's no real focus on healing?
2: A hundred percent. I mean, that's, that is in the top three reasons why I wanted to do my current podcast, because I want to show what happens when the proverbial lights go down, when the, when the case is closed, so to speak, cause it's really not, there's, you know, appeals. We don't talk about the appeals process. We barely talk about probation. We barely talk about parole hearings Like we, and you know, we just, and we don't talk about what that does to a victim's family in terms of their healing. They're, they're, they're moving through their process. We don't really have that conversation because it's easier just to, to tie it up in a box and put it up on a shelf. Oh, he's behind bars. She's behind bars. Done and done. You know, if you're fortunate enough to win a wrongful death suit, like we were, you know, there's, there's no system in place to help you recover your judgment. So that's another layer that we don't often talk about. And so for me, it's, you know, you get caught with, oh, she's just still complaining about that stuff. And the other side of me is like, but it's still happening. And don't you think it's interesting to know that it's still happening? Because we place judgments on victims and survivors that as soon as their offender, if the offender is either caught, and if they're found guilty, that it's just, now you can move on. And that is such a, a misconception about what it's actually like. Right. Thank you for that.
0: Um, I think that, you know, we obviously know your, the path that you followed was obviously due in large part to the <clears throat> murder of your brother and the subsequent trial and injustice. One thing I wanted to know, and I think others might be curious about, is what, do you, what was your path before this happened? You were a 22-year-old woman, you know. Um, it, what was your, your plan, I guess, if you had one? Or where do you think you
2: would have gone with your life I did. I, I was, I was one of those odd children that, um, at six years old knew that I wanted to be a child psychologist. Uh, I was playing therapy, um, uh, when other kids were playing school and. waitering, which is awesome. But I had had really incredible experiences with therapists growing up due to my own environment, excuse me. And that was what I wanted to do. So my, my sights were set on being a therapist. And at the time of my brother's murder, I was living in San Francisco, attending um, school. Um, I was in my last semester of college applying for my master's uh, program at that time, finishing up an internship at a psychiatric hospital. Um, and I moved home when my brother died, I moved home. I, I left it all behind and I didn't want to go back to it because I was so stuck in my own grief and my own trauma that I wasn't in a place that I could help others, Mm -hmm. but years, years later, um, I ended up back in the field. Um, I was running a a nonprofit organization for about 16 years until COVID hit that was providing free mental health to teenagers, um, that were depressed and suicidal and dealing with substance abuse and assault, um, neglect. So I was able to kind of make my way back because I'm actually pretty good at it. And my life experience, I think has given me another layer of being a good helper. So, uh, but anyway, yeah, that's what I was planning on doing. I was had my sights set on being a therapist.
0: I would imagine there's some crossover between working with victims and and also working in that field. It's
2: you know what? It's I I am a firm believer in education. I am also a believer in life experience and the things that I was learning at the time um you know was different than my life experience and and mm-hmm. going through what I did um allowed me to tap into you know, personal and interpersonal relationships, which is what you can't necessarily get in a textbook. I wasn't getting that necessarily from the psychiatric hospital I was working in. And that's what it's there for to teach you different different skill sets. Mm-hmm. But doing the work that I was doing, helping teenagers and victims, you know, and families all these years really satisfies that part of my my soul that is what I wanted to do for my whole life. So it comes full circle sometimes. Yeah, I guess it does. <laughs>
0: Um when you reference going through what you're going through it never ends as you said you know people think once it's over like it's over there's a you know there's some point at which you you aren't going through it anymore but it's lifelong I imagine and so my next question would be that people often say it in our field they use the term closure all the time I hear that regularly In your opinion, is there such a thing? Should we even use this word?
2: No, not when it pertains to um, this kind of trauma and tragedy. I mean, can we say there's closure when you end a job and you move on and you work through the the hostile work environment or a boyfriend or girlfriend or partner ends your relationship is there closure. And those things I I could imagine, and I can see the the benefit of using that term, but this is not something that you work through and you like one day are like, okay, I think I'm good today. I don't have loss. I don't have yearning. I don't have sadness. I don't have anger. Okay. And maybe that happens. I have not met anybody in the near 30 years that I've been talking to people that has ever been like, Oh yeah, I'm good today. I feel nothing um, with the tragic loss of my loved one. And nobody that I've ever spoken to ever uses the word closure. We all, for the most part, use the word moving through, moving forward. It's not moving on because that is if you've left something behind. It's just you're moving through it because every day it presents you with a different obstacle. Um, and a, and a different, you know, point of view and a, and a different experience that you have to continue to navigate. And that's, that's. Part of the process of grief, and that's also part of the process of of honoring your loved one. That it's a, it's a it's ongoing, and I'm okay with that because that means that every day I get to work through my, my pain, but it also gives me the opportunity to 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 think about and, and love my brother. Oh, that's nice.
0: Um, I had a feeling that you were you were going to discuss this as something that is ongoing, and I'm glad that you shared that because I do think there's a misconception that there's closure and that you just. Yeah, you just get over it. Um let me just move on really quickly. We know that speaking of what happened, the person you refer to as the killer was acquitted of his crime. So one of the questions I had is do you think that things would be different for you and your family if he had been convicted of the crime? Different how? Well, would you have moved to a different path? Um maybe your feelings. Um would there have been, you know, would you have had a sense of some type of making things right? Um, you know, it's a different thing when someone is rightfully convicted for a crime, at least even if there's not closure. And I hear people say it all the time. Okay, there's some measure of being able to feel at peace a little bit. So I just wonder, would it have contributed or, you know, how healthy might it have been for you and your family if the, you know, killer was convicted rightfully of the crime?
2: I, I guess I would say the the difference, the only thing I can compare it to, because I have no understanding of what that would feel like, other than when he was imprisoned for nine years when he was in Las Vegas for the crime that he committed there. I, I can tell you that for the nine years that he was behind bars, I I my breaths were a little bit deeper because I didn't have the the constant fear of uh in in anticipation of him popping up and doing something and getting into the news again and being on the cover of something again and spouting off. I I that had dissipated for that nine year time period. And I didn't realize how much anxiety I was experiencing with him being a free man until he was imprisoned. And then I and then I realized, oh wait. And I and I remember the exact moment it happened. I was walking with my son up to a big box store. I don't remember what it was um do I do, but I don't want to say it. Uh, and there was a person sitting out in front and they were, you know, signing petitions or raising whatever, whatever it was. And there was an African-American man sitting behind the table and he had the same stature, the same presence. And I I wore glasses. I didn't have them on. So it was just like this. And I was like, I panicked because I was like, that that's him because I had sat behind him for so long in court and I studied him and I, I knew the shape of his head and knew the shape of his shoulders. And I saw, and as I approached, I was like, oh my, oh wait, it can't be him. And, and that was the moment that I was realizing, oh, wait a minute, I, I have a bit of a reprieve here. So mm-hmm. I can tell you for that fact, it allowed me to, to just experience my life a little bit differently, but I don't think it would have changed my mission to help victims. I don't think it would have changed my mission, um, to be of service. I may not have done my podcast, um, but I still absolutely would have wanted to continue to show, you know, the resiliency and courage of other victims. um, because it's so incredibly empowering to watch how people, you know, pull themselves up by their bootstraps. So you referenced your
0: podcast, which we're definitely going to cover, but um, at one point I saw that you had said you have a love-hate relationship with the media. And I wondered if your feelings are any different now, taking into consideration that you're part of the media now as a podcaster.
2: Um, So my love-hate relationship with the media is the reason that I'm doing this current podcast, Media Circus. So my experience with with the media, with our case and having it be so high profile was incredibly invasive, was uncomfortable. It was scary. Um, it was powerful. But having said all that, it also allowed for people to go into the courtroom and to see what goes on, to see it on their own time to, we don't have to listen to it through pundits. If you didn't want to, you could watch a gavel to gavel, right. And you could see what was going on in there. And that's in high profile cases. So God knows Mm -hmm. what's happening when the cameras aren't in the courtroom, but we got to tip in and look at what was going on. And then the media allowed us to be the 13th juror, right. In that case. So had we not had the camera he would have been acquitted and that would have been it. At least with Mm -hmm. the media having as much involvement as they did, people got to see for themselves. They got to see the evidence for themselves. They got to come to their own conclusions that, yeah, I'm pretty sure this guy got off. But it caused a lot of trauma and additional pain for our family. But I'm also, also understanding the power of it and that I can use it now to push an agenda, to, you know, to talk about victims' issues, to talk about the things that are really plaguing the victim community. So that's my love-hate. The Media Circus podcast is really to kind of highlight that journey and to really talk about you know the benefits of media, um, the power of media, and also where they get it right, where they get it wrong, where they get it in the way. Where they, some of my my guests have said it has helped them in their healing. Others have said it was really hard with everybody watching. So, I think it allows us um, to kind of go behind the scenes a little bit and help sensitized what I think is a very desensitized society because we're just inundated all the time and we stop short of actually hearing the heart behind the stories.
0: I I think I've read before that you didn't feel that you were treated very fairly. I don't know if it was by the media or if it was by the public in general, which I know is different.
2: I think that you know it, it's a different periods of time. I mean, we're you know for I mean, obviously for, for your listeners, they understand that this was a 1994 where we didn't have the benefit of the social media and a, and the and the media the way that we think of it today, which by the way is also just people on their cell phones recording and uploading it and then sharing. And, and so it's, it's a different world than what we experienced in, in 1994. And it was bad then. Mm-hmm. And the reason I say that is because it's so easy to have mistruths be put out into the world and then no opportunity to fix them. So then you just say stuff and there's no retracting. You don't get to, you know, rewrite the, the headline of the printed newspaper. You know, at least now we can retract things. We can upload and, and update stories with current information. Mm-hmm. But back then it was just, it just was what it was. And that's the end of the discussion. And that sometimes created more problems, you know, for us, it was hard because we were everywhere. The story was everywhere. You couldn't escape it. And so there was no privacy. There was no autonomy. Mm -hmm. It was very racially divided. And so there was a lot of hate that was coming. And then there was also a lot of love. And, and, you know, as we all know, hate usually rises to the top. Mm -hmm. And so it it got scary at times. Um, But now that the world is changing in this pace, I, Mm -hmm. I get hate mail through email now rather than just sent to my mailbox. (laughs) I get direct messages that are really crappy, but then I also get really beautiful messages. So I think that's what I'm, I'm saying that it's, it's, you know, it's hard. And do you, do you engage? Do I, do I correct every right, wrong? Every time that I've been accused of something, do I go in there and then try to fix it? I mean, at what Mm -hmm. point, you know, am I, am I, am I chasing it? So. Right. Understood. You had talked about your new podcast, Media Circus, and
0: how you decided to make it and some of the stories. But can you fill us in a little bit more? I know that it was based on a book that you wrote. And so can you just discuss the book a little bit and the evolution? Because I want to make sure we fully capture what Media Circus is all about.
2: Thank you. So in 2005, I wrote a book called Media Circus, a private a public, sorry, I brought a look at private tragedy in the public eye. Um, and I took, uh, I don't remember now 10, 10 high profile stories, um, uh, including Deborah Tate, who is sister of Sharon Tate, um, from Manson murders, um, the DC snipers, wife, Mildred Muhammad, um, Eric Garner's family who was, was killed in New York, um, on the streets of New York, uh, mm-hmm. the story of Skylar niece. We have the story of Terry, um, faster belt who, um, she was one of the first stories to ever, you know, grace the cover of Life uh, magazine when she was, her family was killed and she was left to float a boat out in the middle of the ocean and survived. Um, and the opportunity that I had to talk to these people about their experience, you know, kind of going through their trauma um, in front of the world watching and how that impacted their their, their recovery process and their and their resilient approach to life. Um, how the media impacted that was really important, and to and again to kind of give them the the control back of the narrative. And so, when I was looking to do something different this time, um, that really always stuck with me. Those stories were so important to me, and so I was successful enough to work with Cast Media, who saw the benefit in that, and uh, here we are. So. I'm doing that same thing again and kind of replicating um, that same formula because it was helpful. It helps teach journalists how to talk to victims and survivors. It also helps in the area of the public as to how to consume true crime, which is is fascinating to me. So I really want to try to help those that are um, enthusiasts to, to try to do it respectfully. Um, so hopefully the show does that.
0: I understand what the podcast is giving victims a platform, told from you know their point of view, which I think is fantastic. Um, on on the flip side, is that what you hope the public will also gain from this?
2: Yeah, I mean, my my goal always, you know, um, is to leave people with an action. You know, an action item, right? So once you're done, I want you to be able to feel like, oh, I, I got something out. Of it. I know what I can do now. And whether it's, you know, volunteering, donating, or if it's just knowing that you can be more respectful when you're sharing, liking, tweeting, forwarding, commenting, because we see those comments, we feel, we we hear the pings, we hear the notifications, we see the stories on the timelines and on the feeds. So while you're doing that, and while you're having conversations about my life, or the victim's life, just be a little bit mindful that there's still people back here, you know, and you can turn off the computer for the night, but I'm still in it and I'm still living it. And so the purpose and one of the goals of this show is to give suggestions to people that are listening to try to reframe the conversation that we talk a lot about closure. We talk a lot about what justice it, what it means. We throw that word around too. And so really trying to identify what that term means. And and really just the impact that these crimes have on our society. So it's it's layered, and I, I hope that people walk away with something every time.
0: How do you balance? This is something that we struggled with. We are academics, and we want to be educational, but we're also at events like CrimeCon where people are running around with T-shirts and you know, call Keith Morrison, and we're part of now that you know the group. Um, so. How do you think other podcasters, I kind of get in a sense of how we're trying to do it, which I think might be somewhat similar, but how are how should we be balancing this with being respectful, delivering, being in this true crime entertainment space, which we are,
2: but how do we balance that with being ethical and respectful? Where's the line? I would say you start with honesty and <laughs> knowing what your what your mission and your purpose is. I mean, there are definitely shows out there that while maybe well-intended to help solve a crime, having endless conversations about the potential conspiracies and the potential theories doesn't really do much to move the needle except just generate clicks, right? And so if that's your goal, then be clear at the top. Like, we don't have any legal background. We are not law enforcement agents. We are just people on a microphone and this is just a theory that we have. Whatever it is, just declare, be honest, be candid, and then let people pick and choose what they want to listen to right so if you're going to come to mm-hmm. to my podcast for example media circus and you're going to know that it's honest it's what the victims and survivors want you to know we talk about it beforehand to let them know that they have full control of how we're going to do the show they can edit things they can tell me no I don't want to talk about that and I might say I want you to tell me why you don't want to talk about it so that is the clear message for example, uh, one of our guests, she was the one of the survivors from the uh, three women that were kidnapped and held captive for nine years in Ohio. She doesn't like to talk about what happened to her, um, so I'm not going to now go and do it after she specifically asked me not to. But I want to understand why, and of course, I want her to be able to tell you why. And so it it's it's an intention, it's an integrity, and that's all that I would say is be honest, have integrity, um, know your audience, state your mission clearly, and and stick to it. Um and it's not for everybody. Yep. You know, uh, there are people that are going to come to to my show and and you know, want more salacious details and want, you know, 50 minutes of retrying the trial. We're not doing that. So, you know, I think that it's not going anywhere this industry. Um when I went to CrimeCon, I I actually spoke and I said I I'm curious about this industry. I don't understand the true crime enthusiast, but I'm embracing it because it's not going anywhere. I'm a subject of it. So, While that conversation is all happening, I'm going to tell you how it feels, and then let you sort of, you know, hopefully take away some some compassion from this and and move forward in your life in a different way.
0: You also mentioned that you discuss on the podcast um, justice and various forms of justice. Um, That's also a term that we talk about a lot. What does justice
2: mean to you? I don't have the faintest idea because I feel like it's a word that we just throw around and it sort of has. It's just like the word just blends now with other words. Like it just doesn't have any, for me, it doesn't have like a potent meaning anymore for me Um, because I don't, I don't know what would have been enough if in my brother's case, if the killer would have been convicted and behind bars, I I can't tell you what I would have felt. I do know that from other victims and survivors are like, okay, he's, he's behind bars. He's in the system. She's in the system now. But I still have to deal with all of this. I still have to be prepared for, like we said before, you know, the, the appeals hearings, the parole hearings, whatever it is. I have talked to victims in the past that have been harassed by their offenders from behind bars. So they're dealing with that. So I don't, I don't know, you know, I, I maybe off the street to not bring harm to another person. I mean, we always want and love that and, and think that's incredible, but it, it doesn't, it doesn't, heal you. I mean, it, it maybe is like one shred less of anxiety, like I said, but it just comes in a different, just comes in a different form. So it's, it's, I don't know. I've, I asked this on my show and I get the same stuttering. Like, I don't, I don't know. Well, you talked about possibly healing
0: people. What is, um, along those lines, what do you think is one of, one of the most important things that we can do as a society or as a system for victims of crimes and their family members?
2: We don't always have to fill the space with words. <laughs> sometimes we can sit in silence and that can be the most comforting um, and effective tool for a victim. I I, I I know that a lot of us talk out of the need to fill space, right? And we get nervous and there's nobody saying anything because so I'm going to start to say some things. And so we sometimes hear from a victim's s- survivor standpoint, we sometimes hear phrases that are like, hmm, I don't know. Like when you, it's all part of God's plan, like I, I can't handle hearing that. You know, it's, you know, from my, for me saying it's people will say to me, well, it's not as bad as, you know, your father who lost a kid. Like there are things that we say that I think are meant to be helpful, but are actually kind of insensitive. So I'm just saying you don't always have to say something. You can just say, I, I, I'm thank you for sharing. I'm sure that's hard. I'm here if you need me. I'll hold your hand, uh, you know, or ask, what do you need? Like, we don't have to impose what we think they need. We could just ask, like, what do you need from me right now in this moment? How can I be of service to you? I think making sure that we're always honoring the victims and survivors by saying their names. You know, we have so many opportunities now with with our our daily mass shootings um, that we can, you know, talk about the victims and their survivors more than we talk about the offender. It doesn't mean we don't highlight the heinous act, but there needs to be some equality there. When laws come up, when there's bills coming up in your neighborhoods, pay attention. Pay attention to who's being, you know, running for governor, running for, you know, district attorneys, for public defender, what, whatever positions or the, the propositions. I mean, pay attention because those are the people that are that are helping or hurting victims and survivors in your community. I mean, those are ways that we can start to help and and pay better attention. Thank you. That's great. And some of the big question, it's a I could be here forever talking about that. But thank you for asking.
0: I'm sure I'm sure you can be here for talking about a lot of the questions. Um, I appreciate that. And one of the things we always encourage our audience to do is please pay attention and vote people out who are bad, you
2: know, vote people in who. And read and read between the lines. You know, I think that's something, I mean, we tend to be right now, especially we're super polarized. It's just all Dems, all Republicans. Right. And the ads that you read, the propositions, they're meant to confuse you. So read, do your research. Don't just vote, you know, based on the title of something because it's meant, it's meant to confuse you. So pay attention to who's supporting, where's the money coming from? What's the outcome going to be? It's not always as plain and simple as that, you know, two sentences on the pamphlet tells you it is. And so we get tricked a lot. And we it's not our fault. I mean, but we can do something different about it. So we
0: can and we do get tricked a lot. And then we get stuck in a system or with policies or programs that aren't necessarily helpful. So one of the things that I spend a lot of my time talking about, and so do my colleagues, is the fact that we have a very broken criminal justice system in so many different ways, we believe. But are there parts of our system that you think are the most flawed? Where should we aim our – is there somewhere we should focus our attention to first, in your opinion?
2: Oh, gee, um,
0: <laughs> so
2: hard. Um well, for
0: us, the answer is at, at, at every system. Like I, I do my research on bail and plea bargaining. It's all broken throughout the entire. And I just learned about how bad the appeal system is. So I, I'm just curious if you, it's okay if you don't um, have an opinion on this matter, if it's just
2: too much, but. You know, the, the truth is it's 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 too much. I mean, you, you have a, a, a legal background, right? So Things make different sense to you than they make to me. My my experience is purely emotional, and when I in it, I'm like, well, this doesn't make sense. But someone says, well, that's the law. I'm like, well, then change the law. Well, Kim, it's not that easy to change the law, and then you get, oh, guess guess we can't change it because it's not easy. And so, I think you know, if 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 those of us that don't have the the knowledge and the 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 vocabulary, and I don't literally mean that, but like the, the legal stamina, it's confusing, and it becomes. It, be, it evokes a feeling of hopelessness, which is why, for me, with my conversations around victims and survivors, is because they have they muddle through that, they get through that, and they sit at the at the kitchen and back in the day on their typewriters and they write their petitions and they write their their congresspeople and they they look for places that we can make differences. That's why we have so many of the laws we have today is because of a, a family that was impacted by something which we didn't know was broken until you were up against it and you're like, well, wait a minute, this isn't right, and so. I think if we pay attention, we stop passing the buck and blaming everybody else that we get involved and we ask questions and go to workshops, go to seminars, read books, listen to shows like this that actually are taking the time to walk you through and don't be complacent. And it's okay to not know. I, I've been in this world for 30 years. I still can't tell you. I, I, I'm still baffled by it. And I've been in every element of a bankruptcy court, family mm-hmm. law, civil court, criminal court. And I'm still like, what the F? How are we still here, this broken? And I'm 30 years in it and I can't figure it out. So, and it gets overwhelming. Yeah. So I don't know if that answers what you're saying,
0: but. No, it's, there are multiple areas. And one of the areas that I've, uh, I look at as well is I think that our juror system is really problematic with what I've seen juries doing with decision-making. You spoke with jurors for your podcast, Confronting OJ, what are some of your main takeaways here and what can we do or should we reform the jury system? Should we retain it? Like what do we do about our current state
2: of jury decision-making? Well, I, you know, I, again, it's hard for me to know and in, in, uh, across the board mm-hmm. how, how corrupt and biased <laughs> a jury system can be. I only saw what I saw in our case. Um, but what I did witness was you know, how the process works. I never understood, you know, the voir dire. I never understood that you could hire people to help you pick the best people to, to side with you. Like, I never understood that. I, I had no idea how the jury system worked and I had the benefit of seeing it in the civil case and in the criminal case mm-hmm. and how manipulative that process is. Um, and I, that bothers me a lot. I I think that we don't put enough uh, honor and pride into our our jury system in the sense that we we try everything we possibly can to get out of it. I can't tell you how many people come to me of all people and ask me for excuses as to how to get out of jury system. I'm like, are you are you kidding me right now? <laughs> like, we need you. Like, we we need you know educated people professionals and not to say that people that have are just students or, you know, that are working blue collar jobs don't have the ability, but it, it, there, there needs to be more pride in the process and more celebration of doing your civic duty rather than the opportunity to get out of it so easily. I mean, you, some States they pay 10 bucks an hour or 10 bucks a day. It's ridiculous. So I, that part for me, I think it should be mandatory. I think we need to figure out a way to, to make it mandatory so people can actually see how the process works take some stock in it be invested in the process but it, it seems I, I I don't know it just seems like you know everybody's just out to to win rather than get and rather than to pursue the facts and I'm understanding that that's that's not what the system is supposed to be about which was very confusing to me
0: and do you think that was the reason I mean you didn't get justice with the jury in the criminal trial that you had to deal with I mean you, I think you said in confronting OJ that they didn't do their jobs at the end of the day.
2: Well, they didn't. They stopped listening. They told us they stopped listening. They Their bags were packed for weeks before, you know, they were even handed the case to deliberate. Right. Um, they, they told you that they dismissed things. They were making decisions based on someone, to, uh, you know, uh, an attorney's personality or hairdo or suit or what. I, I mean, that's... That's not what it's supposed to be about. And, you know, the whole notion that you're supposed to put aside your personal beliefs, I think that's BS because how do you do that? How do you put aside your personal beliefs? And they, they, they fell forward hook, line, and sinker. And they, they just were very closed off and they told us that. So that's not doing your job. Your job is supposed to stay open till the end. And literally three hours, three and a half hours of deliberation after 10 months of testimony, come on.
0: That, that seems to be one of the problems I see with a lot of juries coming in for long trials in two hours. How do you decide life in
2: Well, two hours? You know, and, and listen, may, maybe there are cases that are that are that black and white, right? I, I, I don't know. I can't. I don't know every situation, but there's something about that that seems odd to me. And then there are other times where I'm like, Oh my God, I can't believe they took that long. Of course that person's guilty. But so it's emotion, right? Like, so when they say put it aside, it's impossible to put your emotion and your personal beliefs aside. And I don't know how you fix that. I don't either.
0: I have, have at least, at least in my own opinion, it needs to be, as you said, incentivizing jurors to want to be there and do their job. But also I think like it's time for serious juror education. I mean, in a real way, not just some jury convoluted jury instructions. Anyway, I'm sorry. I I could go on. I know that um, we only have a couple minutes left or Let's just change uh, direction, or not direction, but change tracks a little bit here. Um, I think we all can gather what motivates you um, and how you've been motivated to continue your path in this field. Can you talk about, are there any people in your life that motivate you, any personal heroes you might have that also contribute to you keeping, you keeping your work going?
2: My dad, my brother, my son, my fiance, um, my friends, the people that I've met all these years are the people that motivate me and, you know, keep me focused and centered and keep me on a, a path of doing good. Um, I've always had that in my heart. And so I just had to sort of look differently as to how to make that happen now. I, for a long time, felt burdened by the term victim advocate. And, and, and because there was so much media around our story, I felt like I, I was overwhelmed with the, the ask to do so much uh, because I didn't, I didn't understand it. and I didn't, I didn't understand my voice at that time. I think now I'm at a place where I feel fortunate um, and I feel grateful that people trust me with the message and trust me with the mission. I'm learning what to do with it. Colleen Campbell is a, a woman I'm not sure if people are familiar with her Colleen Campbell her, her son was 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 murdered um, and then a few years later her brother who's Mickey Thompson, he's a legendary NASCAR driver he and his wife um, were, were executed basically and Colleen has been a trailblazer in the victims rights movement and she is a dear dear personal friend of me and she's really taught me and, and been a support for me the staff at the national center of victims of crime and the board, um, where I'm, I sit on, you know, there's just, there's everywhere I look, there's a, there's a motivation. Um, So I have to ask because
0: I've always been an admirer of your father in particular. Is it okay to ask how he's doing?
2: Of course my dad, um, my dad is what year is this? My dad's turning 82 this year. Um, my dad is doing great. My dad volunteers, uh, in, in, uh, Arizona, where he lives. He was a victim advocate uh, working with domestic violence victims for a while um, as a volunteer. And now he's a civilian police officer. So he um, is volunteering for the police force. It's a program that they have in Arizona, but other states, which I'm learning, that they ask for support um, from the community to help officers like a traffic stops. If there's a, a collision, they'll have the civilian officers come in and help guide traffic and and so that officers can actually do their investigative work or do their, you know, their officer work. Um, so my dad gets to, you know, Help and He can give tickets if there's people parked in the wrong places. He does a lot of community work. Um, so that's really amazing for my dad and keeps him, keeps him busy and off the couch. That's really cool. I don't think I've heard of many 82 year olds that are serving law enforcement. Right. I mean, when my dad told, told me that I, I, I was shocked. I had no idea, but he wears a hat and he's got a, you know, wears a radio and he drives an actual police car. And, um, you know, he's, he can't put the sirens on and he can't engage with offenders. Um, but he definitely has a presence and it makes him, you know, he's super proud and I'm proud of him. Well, community
0: policing is one of the ways we can improve all the dynamics of communities and relationship with police officer. I bet your dad's a great liaison in that in regard. That's so cool.
2: Yeah. Thank you. I'll make sure I tell him that. Thank you.
0: That's great. Um, are there other future projects that we should look forward to you working on? Are you Focused. I know you're focused on your podcast right now. Is there anything else in the works that we should know about or let our audience know about?
2: Um, Not right now. Um, Media Circus is taking up um, positively a lot of my time. Um, due to COVID, my uh, organization that I was running for 16 years, we had to close our doors. And so it's been a little bit of a finding myself at 50, <laughs> which um, I wasn't anticipating that. So, um, but it's been an interesting time of, of, of self-reflection and introspection. And so, um, I'm focused on, on my show and and doing the work at the national center, um, and just trying to be more, more, more out and of service where I can.
0: I listened to the first episode, which, um, was obviously you started with your own story. Um, it was excellent as as you know i eagerly anticipate the rest of the episodes like i'm sure our audience will can you just give us some of the logistics you know when when can we listen to media circus uh, you know is it um you know just uh, let us know how we can listen where we can listen
2: and we'll make sure to uh do that thank you so um it's anywhere you listen to podcasts so i think while people are here they can just go and find media circus and just click on the subscribe button i think that's a great way. It's, it's every week we're doing a 12 episode first season. And then, uh, I'm imagining the same 12, this is kind of new <laughs> to me. So, um, sure. we're doing They're about, you know, 35 to 45 minutes, depending on the topic, depending on the guest. Um, we dropped our first episode on July 11th with Fred Guttenberg, who is the father um, of Jamie, one of the Parkland school shooting victims, and then releasing, you know, new episodes every week um, from different angles. You know, we kind of identify and talk about the what, who a victim is, because it might be different in different stories. Sometimes we harp on the media, sometimes we celebrate the media, um, and as I said, I, I, I hope people walk away with just a different insight to something that they thought they already knew about.
0: Have you finished production on season one or are you still working on?
2: No, we're still, we're still in it.
0: Great. Well, I'm so excited no, we're for it. Through, I can't yeah. wait to you know listen to the rest. Is there anything else? Sorry that I didn't cover that you want to add about the podcast about any of anything that you want to highlight
2: before we let you go today? only thing I, I alluded to the National Center of Victims of Crime, I'm always trying to point people in the direction of that organization. We're celebrating 35 years of of working with victims advocacy. We helped start the National Compassion Fund, which is a fund that helps families of mass tra- tragedies. So we have funds that get open. So, you know, it's, it's a way to kind of, when people want to give and donate to work to families, it's a way to kind of streamline that so that that hundred percent of every dollar that we raise goes back to the families. um, And the administrative costs are all covered by donations from, you know, big, big companies or whatever will cover our costs. But we started that um, after the Aurora shooting and we've done, you know, millions and millions and millions of dollars have gone back to victims in that regard. But the work that we're doing is incredible um, and lots of advocacy and lobbying and, and, you know, direct services. And so I encourage people to check that out at victimsofcrime.org. And volunteer, donate, five bucks here and there makes a difference. So terrific. Thank you.
0: Amy, I have so many great takeaways from my conversation with Kim.
1: I'm so jealous that I didn't get to sit in on that interview. It would have been much, much longer because I would have had so many questions. She's so interesting, she's so inspiring. And it's just amazing what she's doing.
0: I think so. But let me me just break down a couple of the takeaways here. One of the things that Kim said was that networks are just not interested from her point of view about victimization and education. It's not salacious. I know. But I feel like as podcasters and other true crime, as we evolve, we are moving in that direction. absolutely. And I hope so. Because Kim was talking about also projects that she proposed maybe years ago, Mm -hmm. right? So- now we talk about true crime ethics, and we we talk about that in a future episode. So I hope that networks are going to be much more open. You know, I think judging by the networks that have contacted us and asked us to also speak and come on their shows, I feel like I see a, more, a move towards more educational content. It was hard to hear for me about some of the ways in which family or victims' families are neglected, even though I knew a bit about it. But it's enlightening, I think. You might have felt the same way because we work with offenders so much more, and we're so you know, offender based in our knowledge. But were you surprised to hear some of Kim's, you know, descriptions about how she was neglected, but also how she was
1: victimized? People were sending her hate mail. It made me feel a little one-sided in the work I do because I do spend so much time working with people who are incarcerated or who are reentering. And while a lot of those people were victims in various ways, it still made me realize that I need to start paying more attention to victim advocacy type of work. Right. I need to not pay more attention, but I need to maybe get involved more with victim advocacy work. I mean, I think on our podcast too, it's good that we give, uh, I
0: hope we're giving equal platforms to victims as well. Um, And again, Kim doesn't think of herself as a victim, you know, and she sort of identifies as a survivor, but it's something beyond that. She describes her loss and not closure. And this is something I'm always going to keep in mind because I don't appreciate that word closure either. And I don't think that many uh, families of people who have been murdered do. Kim will never get over the loss of her brother. Um, As she says, you move through it. And that's something I've always thought. I asked her, like, what's the alternative? Do you really feel closure? How often do you hear that term?
1: Yeah, in my research, I've come across closure. And we've operationalized closure now as more post-traumatic growth. Okay. That makes sense to me as well. Because closure
0: is a misnomer. I agree. Okay, well said. Jury reform is so important, and based on what Kim said, I wish we could incentivize jurors more. You know, there's some people who are proud to serve in juries. I know that Um, I absolutely um, would love to. I've never actually made—I've made it to, you know, on a—I haven't made it on a trial. Um, I know that Alan mm -hmm. was very proud to serve. But as Kim said, a lot of people want to get out of jury service because it's mostly unrewarding, and it has negative financial implications Mm -hmm. for those who serve. It's simply not encouraging. Shouldn't we be doing more to encourage Most, people? Some,
1: some states demand that employers pay their employees for time missed from work for jury duty. I think all states should. I, I mean, I wish all states I think could. it's not all occupations. I think that's the issue, too.
0: And I think that's the problem, too, because you heard Kim say some some people actually ask her, how can I get out of jury service? Yeah, I hear
1: that all the time from our students.
0: Yeah, of course. Yeah. But it's because there's, they're not incentivized to want to serve, and we have to do something yeah. to get an informed jury on there. Mm-hmm. In the end, I find Kim very, very encouraging. I hope others will find that too. I'd also like to mention that when we recorded with Kim, she had just released her first episode of Media Circus, but now she has
1: released 10 episodes and it is- I can't wait to devour the rest. They're really good and they're short. So they're, you know, when I'm commuting, I can listen to more than one, which I love. I really appreciate it. I encourage everyone to listen. For those of you who want to
0: learn more about Kim Goldman or who have questions directly for her, You can visit her website, KimberlyGoldman.com. Thank you so much for joining us on this special episode of Women in Crime, and we'll see you next time. Women in Crime is written and hosted by Megan Sachs and Amy Schlossberg. Our producer and editor is James Varga. Music composition is by Dessert Media. If you enjoy the show, please remember to subscribe and leave a review. You can also support the show through Patreon, where you can get access to additional ad-free content such as virtual happy hours and an extra full-length episode each month. For more information, visit patreon.com slash crime.